Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, he says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The promise of Jesus is abundant life. In other translations, it says life to the full. This word life in the Greek here is the word zoe. And this word zoe is not just referring to our external life and our external experience, but it's actually more specifically t- talking about our spiritual life, our inner uh, being, the innermost being of our hearts and our minds. It's referring to what's happening on the inside of us. Abundant zoe, abundant life, is what's happening internally. So this must mean that abundant life is not getting what we want when we want it and how we want it. The most dangerous part of a prosperity gospel that gets taught is that um, by following Jesus, um, that our lives will somehow be easier or that when we step into being born again, that we're evading all the troubles in this world. This is actually um, very antithetical to scripture. This is not what we are called to, and this is not the good news or the gospel of Jesus. The gospel, uh, Jesus shows us that he lives counterculturally. He says, you're actually supposed to lay down what you desire, what you want, what you want in your flesh, that we are supposed to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We're supposed to prefer our neighbor above ourselves. We're supposed to go the extra mile, that we're supposed to be last instead of first, that we are to lay down what we desire, what we want. And that list goes on and on. This is what Jesus calls us to. So that must mean that this abundant life that Jesus is talking about is something more than just getting what we want. Abundant life is not the pursuit of happiness. It's not the pursuit of happiness and the fulfillment of happiness. Happiness, again, is just getting what you want. The abundant life, on the other hand, is actually being able to not get what you want, but at the same time, still being able to tap into joy. It's something more. Abundant life is not absence of pain, but it is knowing that there is purpose in pain. And I believe this is what sets us apart as new creations, as born again believers is the purpose that we see in our pain, the joy that can be tapped into in suffering. My heart breaks for people who don't have what we have as believers because when they experience pain, I think, man, that's gotta be even more painful because where is the hope that's set before them? Where is the purpose in the pain? So we have something more when Jesus is offering us abundant life. He promises us life to the full. But at the same time, Jesus tells us and teaches us that there still, even in the midst of abundant life, there will be troubles. John 16, says, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In these two scriptures, we we see two things happening. The first is that Jesus is assuring to us that there will be troubles, that trouble is inescapable. It is an inevitability. He's also telling us the second thing he's speaking to us is that we are called to not let our hearts be troubled. We're called to not be afraid. Again, these are not suggestions. These are commandments and decrees from Jesus that although there will be troubles, we are not meant to be a troubled people. So again, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of abundant life is not the absence of troubles. What it is, a better definition is that it is being able to experience troubles around us without letting that trouble get into us. It is maintaining an untroubled mind and an untroubled heart, even in the midst of a troubled life. And what is daily fear, chronic anxiety and worry, but a troubled heart and a troubled mind? 
It's this internal reality that looks like fear instead of life to the full. This can only mean that the troubles that have happened to us have somehow made their way inside of us. The trouble that's happened around us has somehow come in. Our external experience has become our internal reality of trouble. But Jesus says to not let this happen. So in some way, if we are experiencing this, we we have to confess and say, Lord, I must have missed the mark somewhere if trouble has made its way into my heart, if it's made its way into my mind. When Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, that word let in the Greek is pararueo. And that means to carelessly slip by, to slip on through, to permit, to give permission to enter in. So when Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, he's saying, do not give trouble permission to enter into your heart. Do not give trouble permission to enter into your mind. But unfortunately, oftentimes we do. We give it permission and it comes right on in. But again, as we talked about in part one of this message, Jesus never gives us a command or a decree that he has not fully made us able or empowered us to fulfill or to obey. This, this decree to not let our hearts be troubled may seem impossible, but all things are possible with God. And today I believe he's inviting us to learn how to be people who do not let their hearts be troubled. When Jesus tells us this, he's saying that we have a responsibility, a responsibility to our hearts and to our minds to guard ourselves And although Christ has authority and he's given us authority, he does also give us responsibility because in the kingdom, responsibility and authority parallel. They go hand in hand. That is what healthy leadership looks like. It's when you have responsibility and authority and they go together, they must go together. And I wanna redefine responsibility for us. Responsibility simply is our ability to respond. Responsibility, the ability to respond. It's to recognize that Christ has enabled you, has made you able to respond correctly to trouble and to respond correctly to fear so that you don't have to be a troubled person. He doesn't command us anything he does not give us the ability to fulfill. Responsibility, the ability to respond. Now, I know many of us, we don't love that term responsibility, especially when talking about anxiety and worry and fear. We don't wanna touch it because a lot of times we associate responsibility as, as fault and blame. And, and Tom touched on this a couple months ago and he told us you know, that there are things that happen that may not be your fault, but it doesn't mean that it can't be your responsibility. It doesn't mean that, that you can't step up to the plate and respond the right way. Just because something's not our fault, it doesn't mean it's not our responsibility or that we aren't able to respond. And of course, there are troubles that we create for ourselves, right? I make troubles, I make messes of my life. And even more so, we should be responding. We should take responsibility. Um, If you're going uh, from one church to the next, one job to the next, one community to the next, and there's constantly just this chaos and trouble that's happening, I just wanna say that maybe you're the common denominator and you should reflect and say, okay, maybe I need to respond differently. But of course, a lot of the trouble that we experience, guys, it's, it's not our fault. A lot of the pain that happens to us, it is not our fault. There's terrible things that occur, a lot of things that are not our fault. But we have a savior that shows us a countercultural way. He was perfect without sin and all the trouble that was happening on the earth when he came was not his fault by any means. But yet I believe that his death on the cross was the greatest display in history of someone taking responsibility when it wasn't their fault whatsoever. 
He displays this for us. This world would be a significantly more broken place if we didn't end the cycle of hurt people hurting people. Where would we be as individuals if we didn't step up and say, I'm going to take responsibility for the troubles that may not be my fault, the things that maybe my parents did or the pain that was caused to me from somebody else? This world would be a much more broken place if we didn't say, I can respond to that differently. This is what the gospel is. It is an invitation to respond differently than the world does to trouble and to pain that may not be our fault. It's to say, I can respond. It's to say, I will not let trouble outside of me get in me. I will not let trouble get inside of me. I will respond. Because if I let trouble get inside of me, then eventually that trouble is going to pour out onto somebody else. And it could be trouble in them. And then trouble goes on and on. But we are called to respond to end the cycle. So today I want to provide us another definition of fear. And that is that fear is an incorrect response to trouble. It's an incorrect response to the troubles that happen to us. This is what fear is. When we forget that Christ has made us able to respond, when we go into this reactive state where we react to fear instead of responding to the authority that Jesus has, it opens a door. It, it permits, it lets these things enter into us and then leads to an anxious mind. It leads to an anxious heart. But the good news is that, that God's mercy, his grace, it is extended to us. It is accessible today. His mercy was new this morning when you woke up and he says, my promises are eternal and they still remain and you can access them. And it is never too late to respond to the gospel of Jesus. So as we said in the first part of this message that our first step, our first response to fear should always be repentance. And that word repentance is metanoia. And it simply means to say, I've been thinking wrong. God, come and change my mind. God, I need my brain to be rewired. I need you to change my mind. And for years, neurologists believe that our brains didn't change after adolescence. They believe that we lost what is called neuroplasticity, which is the ability for your brain to create new neural pathways. But of course, after more research, they moved it past the 18-year-old mark to the 25-year-old mark. But then with more research and scientific discovery, they realized that your brain can actually change till the day that you die, that it's never too late for your mind to be changed. They realized that it might be more difficult the older you get, but through implementation of new patterns and habits of thought, it is possible to create new neural pathways. And neural pathways... A neural pathway in simple terms is our brain connecting the dots. It's when neurons send signals from one part of the brain to the other, formulating a pathway. What we see is the more often we think a thought, the wider that pathway becomes, so to speak. Through repetition, we make it easier to think the same thoughts over and over again because it's carving out this wider pathway. The trail becomes more clear, the path gets broadened, and it's easier to go down. And believe it or not, your brain is actually trying to exert as little energy as possible to arrive at a conclusion. To get from point A to point B on the pathway, it wants to take the road of least resistance. And so we often fall into the same thought patterns. We often go down the road of least resistant of thought. We go down the most traveled neuro pathway. So repentance is to say, God, metanoia, come change my mind. Come help me formulate new pathways of thought, new neural pathways. God, teach me how to stop going down the same road, the easy way. Help me to go down the road that's actually less traveled. If you think about it, the broad path has been carved out through 
these continual habits of thought. And Jesus tells us that, that actually the broad path is what leads to destruction, but that the narrow path, the narrow gate is what leads us to life. Zoe, abundant life is the narrow road. So Jesus is going to change our mind by even helping us formulate new neural pathways down the road that may be less traveled. I think it's also interesting to me that Christ tells us that we are to become like children to receive the kingdom. If we're gonna see the kingdom, we must see it through child's eyes. And, and, and actually, as we talked about, we have a deeper sense of, uh, we have neuroplasticity when we're younger, when we're adolescents, our brain is able to create new pathways of thought so much easier just like that there's a new neuropathway that can happen. And so it's interesting to me that the more scientific discovery that occurs, it just points to the fact that Jesus knew what he was talking about. It affirms that the way that he presents to us is, is, is the right way. Even our science confirms it. So there's something called neurotheology. And this is the study of the mind and its relation to God. It's also referred to as spiritual neuroscience, don't get weird. I'm not gonna go in like a new age direction this morning. Um, but science by definition is this, a measurable outcome based off of the integration of steady variables. So without getting too weird, I do wanna assert that in some ways, Christianity, the way of Jesus, discipleship is, is like a science. That if we integrate the culture and the way that Jesus displays for us into our life, there should be an outcome. If we enter and integrate these, these variables, we should have an outcome. There should be fruit. There should be fruit of the spirit of the abundant life that's happening inside of us by practicing the way of the kingdom. Because guys, the gospel is not just a good idea. It, it is something that is meant to be practiced. It's not just a teaching. It is a practice that is meant to be implemented. If you receive the gospel, you, you understand that this is not just a good idea. It's something that is meant to be applied to your life. Dr. Caroline Leaf is uh, this incredible author studying neuroscience, our brain, our faith, and how it relates to God. And I would encourage you to check out some of her resources, check out some of her literature, really awesome stuff. Um, but she says this, quote, it has been found that 12 minutes of daily focused prayer over an eight week period can change the brain to such an extent that it can be measured on a brain scan. So we see that that literally implementing kingdom culture, a way of life, a pattern of prayer can actually change our brain. It's, a, it's literal makeup to, to where we can see this outcome in the natural, that something spiritual can actually have this kind of result. Because our brains and our neural pathways, the way it works have been formulated through habits of wrong thinking. But through integrating patterns of the kingdom, we see that our brains truly can change in a way that we can even measure in the scientific world. Romans 12, Sue says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. So we see that <clears throat> there is a pattern of this world and there's a pattern of thinking that goes along with it. But there's also a pattern of the kingdom. There is a way that we are called to. And I believe that prayer is the pattern of the kingdom. It's the habit that we implement. We see it in this quote from, from Dr. Leaf that if we implement this pattern into our life, we will truly see results. We will see a renewed mind. 
Prayer is how we deal with fear. Prayer is how we deal with anxiety. Prayer is how we deal with the troubled heart, a heart that's in trouble, but it's also how we uh, prevent a heart from becoming troubled. Prayer, friends, is how we fulfill the decree, this command from Jesus to not let our hearts be troubled. Now, I know sometimes when we talk about prayer, it's like, oh, that's not all that exciting. Uh, but guys, I'm not here to offer us another 12-step plan on how to access uh, your better life. Um, we, as I said in the first part of this message, we have more treatment, more uh, research, medical treatment, therapy, everything to address anxiety than we ever have. But at the same time, we have increasing anxiety. We see an acceleration of, of the rate of anxiety increasing even in the midst of that. But what we also have now more than ever, we have more resources, more Christian literature, more books out there, self-help books from a Christian perspective than we've ever had in all of history. But yet even in the four walls of the church, anxiety is doing the same thing. It is increasing and it is going up. But what if the solution all along was just the simple gospel? What if it was to approach the word of God with child's eyes and to believe that the way of Jesus can actually work? I believe that we need to come back to the word of God. I especially encourage millennials and Gen Z. I'm like, we, we come like feeding you know, pigs to the feeding trough sometimes, like when, when a new celebrity pastor drops their book, we go check it out because we're like, it's gonna change my life. And, you know, we read it and then we're kind of the same way, but we felt good. But the reality is, is that the gospel of Jesus, guys, it is the remedy, it is the cure. And I wanna encourage us to coming back to the simple gospel and letting this be the remedy. The word of God is true. Amen. I wanna be a person who believes that the word of God is the cure. I wanna be a person of faith. And Bill Johnson says this, he says, often we'd rather have sympathy from a friend than breakthrough from a person of faith. And today I wanna be your friend, but I also wanna be a person of faith that can maybe help us break into something new that God has for us. I wanna be a person who believes that his words are true, that prayer may be truly the solution. So today I wanna to take a little sidebar and maybe talk about prayer. So we know that God is not a vending machine that we put enough prayer credits into to get what we desire. We don't rack up enough prayer points in the heavenlies to get the prize of, of answered prayer. Uh, prayer, it does move the heart of God. And I believe that when we pray, God moves upon our behalf. But prayer is not about performing enough to convince God to move. Prayer is coming into agreement with how he's already moving. Prayer is coming into agreement with how he said he is going to move according to his word, according to the promises that he has laid out. Prayer is agreeing with who he says he is, who he says you are, and what he says he is going to do. Second Corinthians one twenty says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us for the glory of God. The answer is yes. His promises are internal. They are unchanging. The answer is yes but there is a promise that is meant to be accessed and we access that promise through prayer. What do we say when we get done praying? We say, amen. This word amen means we agree. So prayer is coming into agreement with the promise of God and we access the promises of God through prayer. Ephesians 1.3 says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, was, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. 
So in the heavenly realms, we see that we have every spiritual blessing. Everything we need for internal well-being is in this heavenly place that we have access to. And so I believe that prayer is accessing the heavenly resources. It is the key that unlocks the promises of God. Prayer is our ability to respond. It is our responsibility to access what we already have. It's right in front of us. When God was uh, speaking to Joshua, the Joshua generation, the ones who were inheriting the promised land, you know, they weren't just going into the promised land all easy peasy. You know, the, I know it was a land flowing in milk and honey and all this, but, but there were troubles ahead of them. There were giants to take down. There were battles to win. But, but God told Joshua this. He said that everywhere you put your foot, that ground is yours. You own it. That is the promise. And although God presents this promise to Joshua, he still presents Joshua responsibility. And what is that? That Joshua in faith would step out and place his foot down one after the other. There was a responsibility to step out. And I believe that this is what we do through prayer to access the promises of God, persistently stepping out. There are things that would not have happened if we did not step out in prayer. Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. We are called to step out in prayer. But prayer is not just about what God can do for us. It's about what he will do in us so that he can work through us. Prayer is less about God fulfilling what we ask of him. And it's more about him fulfilling, more about us fulfilling what he asks of us. It's not about necessarily him fulfilling our requests, but it's actually to say, God, what do you request of me? Prayer is not just God's people submitting requests so that he will change the world. Prayer is what changes God's people so that we answer his request to change the world. If we wanna see the world change, then we first must be changed. And I believe that prayer is what brings about that change because God doesn't need to be changed. He's eternal. He is agape love. He's perfect, good in nature. He is the unchanging God. He says, I am. That's who he is. He is eternal. I am. But we need to remember that we are not I am. A couple years ago, I got a tattoo in Israel on a mission trip. Don't sue me or send me an email. Yes, I got a tattoo. Um, but this tattoo says becoming. And this was a reminder to, to me that I am not I am, that I am becoming. I am in need of change. I am in need of transformation to become like I am. He is the potter and I am the clay. And we are in need of change and transformation. And I believe that prayer is what transforms us so that God can work through us. We said in part one of this message, God wants to get heaven into you so that you can establish heaven around you because you cannot address the chaos that's happening around you with chaos in you. You cannot address the troubles that are occurring in this world with trouble within you. You do that with heaven. Jesus tells us that prayer is what gets heaven inside of us. In Mark 9 and Matthew 17, there's a story with the disciples and they're trying to deliver this young boy uh, who is being oppressed, possessed by, by just massive demonic influence. And they are unable, they're unsuccessful to cast these demons out of this boy. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he rebukes them for their unbelief. And then of course, with ease, he delivers the boy. And then the disciples come to Jesus and they say, well, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we not? Why were we unsuccessful? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Only through prayer and fasting. We know that Jesus came to set the captives free. We see that he sets the boy free. It is God's will that this boy would be free. So when Jesus responds to them saying, you need prayer and fasting, he's not saying, 
uh, you should have prayed more to convince God to move on this boy's behalf. God did not need convincing. He wasn't saying pray to convince God. He was saying, actually pray to convince yourself. Pray to address your unbelief so that I actually can work through you. He's saying prayer is what makes us a conduit for heaven, a conduit for the supernatural to break in. I believe that if you look at the Lord's prayer, there are these seven clauses, this thing that Jesus provides us. And I believe that this is what helps us become a conduit for heaven where God can establish heaven in us so we can get it out of us. It is a format and a template to, to become the incarnation of love. And, and I don't have time to get into it today, but I truly believe that this is how we're called to pray, what God calls us into. It is our responsibility and this is how we respond. Jesus quotes Isaiah and he says that his house will be called a house of prayer. Now that's the church, but also it's us as individuals because we are God's house. We are the dwelling place for his presence, our hearts and our minds, all of our being. We are his house and we are a house that has been cleaned. Second Corinthians says, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. New creation, this thing that's never existed before. Second Corinthians also says that we have the mind of Christ. So we have cleaned house and we have a renewed mind, but yet sometimes we still experience fear. And we know that this fear doesn't come from God. Second Timothy 1.7 says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. As we talked about part one of the message, his spirit is of love and love casts out perfect fear. But yet at times we do experience fear or we fall into fear again. And actually this was, this was happening even in the early church where Paul is writing to the Romans. In chapter eight, he says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So apparently these born again believers, new creations filled with the spirit were experiencing fear again. And how does Paul address it? He doesn't say, well, if you're experiencing fear, you must not be a new creation. You must not be a Christian. No, what he's saying to them is remember the spirit that's in you. And he's reminding them of their identity as the beloved. Some of you need to know today that just because you experience fear, it does not mean that you're not a new creation. It does not mean that you're not a born again believer. Fear does not disqualify you. You are a new creation. You are a new house. You are a new home. So what this means is that when fearful and anxious thoughts come in, they're intruders. Because we've already cleaned house. We have the mind of Christ. It's been renewed. So those must be intruders. And what do we do with the intruders? We say, no, you're not welcome here and you cannot stay here. If we experience fear as new creations, we know that because we are new creations, God has equipped us. He has made us able. He has given us the ability to respond. That we have a responsibility that we can step into as new creations. And friends, there is a right way to respond as new creations. We don't respond to fear and anxiety the way the world does. There is a format and a way that we are called to as new creations, as born again believers. And that is that we are to respond spiritually. Because we see in 2 Timothy that fear is what? It's a spirit. It's not a disease. Fear is not a disease. Fear is not something that you can put under a microscope and see in the natural. And so this must mean that it can't be conquered or fully addressed through natural means. 
but it can only be addressed supernaturally, superior to what we see in the natural, superior to nature. We know Jesus tells us our war is not against flesh and blood, flesh and blood, what's in the natural, but our war is against spirits and principalities. And the only way to conquer a spirit is by conquering it spiritually. And so we have a way that we're meant to respond and that is spiritually. And I believe in the word, we have it laid out for us how we should do this. We have a format, we have a game plan. Second Corinthians 10, five, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So the spirit of fear, it is an argument that sets itself up against the nature of God, who he said he is, what he said he's gonna do. It's a lie that directly opposes what God has spoken to us. So we're not called to let that lie walk right in the deer, right, right in the door. We're called to, let, to, to, to not let our heart be troubled. That lie tries to make its way in and trouble our heart. And we say, no, I do not give you permission to come in. You can't go past me. We do this by taking responsibility, by responding to the lie and saying, I'm able to respond. I recognize that this is a lie. And I believe that we respond to those fearful lies by cutting them down with the word of God. Because what is the word of God? Well, it is the sword of the spirit. We address the spirit of fear spiritually with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. John 6, 63, Jesus tells us my words are spirit and they are life. Again, that word zoe, abundant life. My words are spirit. When we get into these two camps sometimes with churches where they say, we're more Bible focused scripture, we're more spirit focused on this side. It doesn't make sense to me because Jesus tells us that his words are spirit. They are one in the same. So it is the sword of the spirit. This is how we take thoughts captive that don't align with what God says. But far too often, guys, we go in, we introspect, we go in empty handed. We don't take our sword. We fail to take thoughts captive because we don't have the word of God, the sword of the spirit that can cut them down. It's the one offensive weapon we have in the armor of God. And we're meant to cut down the lies, take them captive and escort them right on out. We are called to get the word in us because the word inside of us is the key to successful prayer. Jesus tells us this in John 15. He says, if my words remain in you, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. What a crazy promise that Jesus gives us that, that if we ask in his name, if his words remain in us and we ask in his name that we can ask anything. Jesus promises us successful prayer. But again, there is a promise that's accessible, that's at hand, that also has a responsibility. It has a condition. It's a promise with a condition because there's that big word at the front and it says, if. And this is a word we oftentimes pass over in scripture, but I wanna tell you that it's so important. This conjunction, these words, if, and, but, they're important. Like scripture is out of context without these words placed in there because a conjunction is word that connects clauses. It's to say that, if this is gonna happen, then this also must happen, or this can't happen. It's this connection point that's necessary. It's a condition. And so every time we see the word if in the Bible, I think what we need to do is to slow down and say, okay, God, is there something I'm meant to respond to here? More often than not, the if means that we have a responsibility to step into, which allows us to access the promise. 
In this verse, I don't think God is saying, I'm going to respond to you with the promise. But I think God is saying, you're meant to respond to my promise by fulfilling the responsibility of getting the word in you and praying. The responsibility is to pray and the responsibility is to also get God's word inside of us so that we can do what? So that we can pray correctly. Because he says, ask anything in my name. Another condition for successful prayer is to what? It's to ask in his name. That word name in the Greek is a noma. And that means the character of or the nature of. So Jesus is saying, getting my word in you lets you know my nature so that you can begin to pray with authority, so that you can begin to pray the promises that I have already spoken to you. Because what is fear? Fear is a lie. It is an accusation about God's nature. And we are meant to pray according to God's name, according to his nature. A lie. It's an argument against the knowledge of God. But we are supposed to be knowledgeable about his name, about the nature of God. We are called to access promises through prayer. But we can't really access the promises if we don't know the promises, guys. We have to, again, come back to the scripture, come back to the word of God so that we can begin to pray successfully. We need to know his voice. John 10 says, my sheep will know my voice and they will follow me. And friends, his voice sounds like scripture. For every truth, there are a thousand lies. But we don't know those lies are lies by studying the thousand lies. We know those lies are lies by studying truth. When the lie approaches, we say, you don't look like the truth, the one truth that I know. So there may be a thousand lies, but they're easy to spot because we know what truth is. People who are really good at seeing counterfeit money and recognizing it, they don't study counterfeit money. They study the real thing. And so that's how we're supposed to be with the word of God. We say, wait a minute, like this thing that's approaching me, this sounds nothing like the word of God. This sounds nothing like the truth that I know. And so it's easy, bam, we cut it down with the promise in the word of God that we already have. And we escort that lie right out where, from where it came from. Now, I know when we're talking about responsibility, it seems like I'm giving you guys this massive list of things to do. But I wanna remind us that, that responsibility, this is, this is not meant to be something that we do in our own strength. Responsibility is about responding, the ability to respond what Christ has already done. The it is finished work on the cross. We're choosing to respond to the work of the cross and not reacting to fear, not reacting to the father of lies, the accuser and the enemy. Fear is an outright agreement with the voice of the accuser about our life and our future. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Fear is agreeing with condemnation, with worst case scenarios in our future that look nothing like the word of God. And if we would get that word inside of us, we would cut that down and say, no way, I am not condemned. That's not the future that Christ has for me. So we need to stop agreeing with the voice of the accuser and come back to agreeing with God. I'm not saying we just ignore the enemy, but we, we need to stop acting like the enemy is intimidating. We as Christians need to stop puffing up the devil so much. <laughs> Honestly, we say the devil this, the devil that. Some of us act like the devil is the lead character in our story instead of God. Like we've got to realign ourselves and say the devil gets no credit. We're the redeemed, we are the victorious. This is our story. 
Again, when we look back at our lives and our story, there's no devil in the details. There is only the fingerprint of God. The devil gets no credit. We need to give credit and glory where it is due. John tells us that, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So our story, our life is not about how the devil stole, killed, and destroyed. Our story is about how Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, how he destroyed the destroyer. Some of us, we walk around living in life uh, of anxiety, a life with a troubled heart, a life with a troubled mind, as if we don't know how the story ends. Because what is fear? What is anxiety? Anxiety is the fear of the unknown and, and fighting for control to predict all the outcomes of the worst case scenarios that might be occurring or could occur. But guys, we know the final outcome. We know how the story ends. And I wanna remind us today that that is what our joy is in suffering. That is what our hope is in the midst of trouble is that we know how the story ends. That's what sets us apart as new creations, as born again believers, is that we know what lies before us, the hope that is ahead of us. We know how the story ends. Let me remind you how it ends. Revelation 12, 10. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The enemy has been defeated. See, the devil knows that he can never knock Jesus off of his throne. He cannot dethrone Jesus. So his one move is to try now through his fear tactics and his lies and accusation is to dethrone Jesus off of the heart of man. He's trying to let trouble come inward so that that trouble sits on our hearts, sits in the throne where Jesus is meant to be, but we're not meant to let it stay there. We're meant to take that captive and say that the throne of my heart is meant for Jesus and Jesus alone. As far as the devil goes, like he and I have this understanding. I hate his guts and he hates my guts, but I win every single time. <laughs> like, like I win every single time because what do we have? We have the promises of God. He can try and come at you, but we have the promises that God has laid before us. I have the sword of the spirit to cut down every single lie that he comes at me with to say, you cannot dethrone Jesus from my heart. You can't touch me with your lies. When the liar points his finger of accusation at me, I just point to the cross and I say, well, look, it has been finished. I choose to not react to fear, but I respond to the cross and I say, this is the truth. This is the authority that I have access to. So today I want to equip you again to remind us with the sword of the spirit, the words that God has said. I wanna put these words into you to empower you to access the promises of God, that we have authority, that we can respond to the cross and the authority of Jesus. John 19, to Telestai, Jesus says, it is finished. In that moment, the works of the devil were completely destroyed, past, present, and future. Jesus tells us in John 17, 2, that he has authority over all flesh. So the old man, the things, the carnal desires that we might have, he has authority over our flesh. John 16, 33, again, he says, I have overcome the world. Things that are occurring in the world, in the political spirit, in the political realm, things that are happening, he has overcome the world. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If he has all authority, then that means that the devil has 
no authority, reminding us again, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. First John 4.4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Luke 10.19, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So Jesus has authority over the world. He has authority over the flesh and he for sure has authority over the devil. And if you agree with that today, I just want you to say amen. Yeah, one more time, amen. amen. Let's stand up. I'm gonna invite the ministry teams to come up. I believe that we do have this call to respond to the authority of the cross. And as I said in the first part of this message, um, that as I was praying and preparing, I I clearly felt the Lord say this. I I felt he said, there are cultural giants at your doorstep. What are you going to do about it? And after teaching part one of this message, I I prayed some more about this. And I just felt the Lord remind me that we're not called to be on the defense. We are called to be on the offense. Matthew 16, Jesus tells us, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The gates of hell will not overcome it. But actually, if you translate all all of this scripture right here, it, it actually is asserting that we are in the offensive, that the gates of hell will not stand against us, the church, as we are moving forward, claiming ground for the kingdom. It doesn't say, I will build my church so they can defend their doorstep from hell. No, we are the ones that are meant to infiltrate the gates of hell. We are meant to be on the offensive. We are meant to go to the giant's doorstep and infiltrate. And I felt as I prayed this week, God said, there should always be giants at our doorstep because we are advancing the doorstep of the kingdom into enemy territory.